Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. And if you are new or newer, I was thinking today, I perhaps need to make a quick comment. The word in context is not only a word I'm accused of using a lot in the pulpit, but when we began the radio program, especially the interview formats, the point was, for instance, today, I'm going to interview an esteemed attorney named Harry Hutchinson. And Harry and I know each other. We're brothers in Christ. We're friends. We have a relationship. But what Harry does in his world as an attorney is different than what you do, say, as a pastor or a youth pastor or a missionary. So the idea of in context is how do people who aren't in, let's say, quote, traditional ministry settings carry out their life. That's the point of the double entendre play out in context in our interview format. So Dr. Harry G. Hutchinson, his Vita and CV would take most of the program. So just to give you a few highlights, he earned his Juris Doctorate at Wayne State University at the School of Law. He then earned an MBA from the University of Michigan. He has a diploma in theology and postmodernism from the Oxford University. He holds additional degrees and postgraduate certificates in British and European labor law. On and on it goes. He's taught at George Mason University. He taught for a time at Belmont University when they started their law school. On and on it goes. Harry is a prolific writer. He writes mostly in the policy world, and we'll talk a little bit about those things. He's written hundreds of blog posts. He's appeared in the New York Times, Detroit News, the Detroit Free Press, etc. He is the co-editor of West Law's Treatise on Religious Organizations. And Harry's dropped a new book, and I'm so excited about this book, Requiem for Reality. Requiem for Reality, Shyman and Suster. It's about to come out now. Can we pre-purchase it, Harry? Absolutely. So it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and a number of other venues. So anytime we talk about anyone's book, whatever search engine you use, just put their name and the rough title of the book and you will find it. Now, I have to ask you some questions about your title selection, Requiem for Reality, because I grew up Roman Catholic and I know well what a requiem is. And a requiem is either a mass or a prayer for the dead or in honor of the dead. So Harry, when you write a book called Requiem for Reality, are you saying we're going to say a prayer over reality? (laughs) (laughs) The death of reality? Well, in many respects, (laughs) I'm suggesting that if you look at the era that we currently live in, and if you look at the actions of our leaders, they are creating a requiem or a funeral mass Mm. for reality. And so they have fled reality following the intuitions expressed by Hannah Arendt. And as we flee reality, we move into abstractions, fantasy, and despair. Mm. Let me give folks uh, a little bit of the information on the website, on the book. I have not gotten my copy of the book, but I've got some information on it, so you're going to help me out a lot. You address critical race theory primarily, it says, like most ideologies before, promises an earthly paradise premised on ceaseless revolution, but instead of delivering on this promise, it produces a terrestrial hell 
echoing the inner nihilism or nihilism of modern life. Contemporary social justice movements, just like progressivism, comma, the New Deal, comma, and post-Civil War Southern Democrats, place Westerners in bondage rather than delivering on the promises of unlimited freedom. First, I want to do some glossary definitions for our friends. First of all, define for me an ideology. Well, essentially, an ideology is a worldview. Joseph Botts, who's a theologian, has suggested that all of us have a worldview. And we should keep in mind that our worldview will be drawn toward the light, that is the gospel, or alternatively, we will be drawn toward a Luciferian imagination. And if you look at the world of ideology, which is tied to critical race theory, you will find that embedded in this ideology are the ideas of Karl Marx. Wow. When he was an 18-year-old, he wrote a poem entitled The Pale Maiden. He said, My soul was once chosen for heaven, but it is now chosen for hell. And so he sought to essentially destroy every living thing and then recreate the world based on his own imagination. So when I talk about ideology, essentially it's an alternative to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's, again, some terms. You gave a great definition, and I appreciate the brevity of Marxism. How do we get from Marxism to CRT? And that might take more than 50 words or so. I think you're right. So (laughs) Karl Marx wrote in mid-century, 19th century, and so he suggested, among other things, that we focus on the material circumstances which affect workers primarily. And then he called forth a revolution. Many of his disciples, they were disappointed because this revolution never really materialized as he suggested. And so they turned to looking at social structures as opposed to economic circumstances. Hmm. And so by focusing on social structures, they decided that you needed to look at culture. You needed to look at universities. And essentially, they decided to take possession of culture and the universities. And one of the institutions that they placed in their crosshairs was the nuclear family. And so one of the things they seek to destroy ultimately is fatherhood. By destroying fatherhood, they thought they could spark a real revolution. So the nuclear family is seen as an enemy to something called— Now, now let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you for just a second. So timeline, just for for me and our our listeners, when are they— literally starting to attack the nuclear family and the idea of fatherhood? I think it starts toward the end of the 19th century, but it took off in the 1930s through the Frankfurt School. 
the Frankfurt School created something called critical theory. Critical theory was a predecessor to critical legal theory, which was a predecessor to critical race theory. Right. So you should also keep in mind that during the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and 60s, postmodernism rose to the fore. And with postmodernism, we became somewhat nihilistic in our philosophical orientation. Okay, that's another vocabulary for our friends. Give me a definition for nihilism and nihil. We hear these terms a lot, and I think people use them differently. Is why I'm going to interrupt you a lot, like existential threat. So give me Counselor Hutchinson's legal definition of nihilism. Well, nihilism from a, both a postmodern and critical theory perspective is grounded in the notion that we are already dead. Theodore Adorno, a German philosopher, suggested that we are dead and essentially revolutionary movements are simply signs of life. But he then concludes that virtually every ideology leads to death and then it leads ultimately to the death of individuals. Theologian Connor Sweeney argues that modern nihilism is now incorporated in modern liberalism. And modern liberalism, in Connor Sweeney's view, ultimately leads to death. This is sober stuff. So when you talk about critical theory and moving to what we call today critical race theory, and, and I, I consider myself somewhat a student of history, Harry, but I have to tell you, in the local church setting, we don't know biblical history, much less church history, much less these kinds of historical issues. I mean, when we heard Bernie Sanders, the senator from Vermont six, eight years ago, talk about we should be a socialistic country, you know, he was laughed off the stage metaphorically. Now, this nomenclature is laissez-faire. People, I know, big deal. That's fine. Well, yeah, we should probably look into that. So at the rate of which this is not understood to a full acceptance by many in our American culture— I mean, what's happened, Harry? Why is this requiem happened so quickly? At least it feels quick. It feels like the scale has been fast here toward the end. And people are tossing these phrases around with a neutral or a positive spin. Very good question. And the answer is it's not new. These patterns, these ideas have been nested in universities over the last 40 to 50 years. Members of the Frankfurt School in Germany, they fled Hitler and they came to American universities, starting with Columbia University, and then they went to the University of California at Berkeley. Huh. And so what we've had over the last 40 to 50, 60 years is a generation of academics. These academics have created acolytes and they are teaching our children, including our Christian children, 
And so now revolution, critical race theory, is now on the tip of the tongue of virtually every educated person, and it has invaded corporations, it's invaded churches, and it's invaded universities and the United States government. The Biden administration is committed to critical race theory, and they have referenced what is called the Abolitionist Teaching Network, which is working on eliminating the spirit murder of African-American children. But this is never going to be talked about in so-called mainstream media or social media. Talk to me about cultural Marxism, critical theory, and where we are today with how the Again, I know I don't want to be stereotypical in these discussions, but when you think of the average American hearing those terms in a neutral or positive-leaning light, Harry, what are they hearing and why are they believing it? Well, in part, they're believing it because the critical theorists have done a fantastic job of focusing on victims and victimology. I would argue that critical race theory has borrowed its focus on victims and concern for victims from Christianity itself. Hmm. Indeed, I argue that critical race theory can be collapsed into a religious sense. And I would argue that critical race theorists are simply neo-pagan Puritans. Wow. Basically, they are looking for perfection in human life. And so you see a number of Christian leaders, Jamar Tisby, Chinaqua Walker Barnes, Beth Moore, all of these individuals, the Southern Baptist Convention, they are embracing many of these ideas. They are mainstreaming this in our churches. They're mainstreaming them in Christian colleges. They're mainstreaming them at Baylor University, a nominally Baptist institution. So all of these ideas have now been exposed to our children, and essentially the mainstream media actually denies that critical race theory is being taught in our schools. This is nonsense. And the election in Virginia in 2021 was proof that the parents are beginning to get engaged. And in my opinion, they need to get even more engaged, whether they're Christian or not. If you believe in truth, if you believe in reality, you need to get engaged. You know, I've, I've said from the pulpit of the church I serve, as well as on the different broadcasts we have, Harry, I've never used the word evil more in the 42 years I have been, you know, in some form of ministry as I have the last two years. There seems to be no explanation for some of these movements. We had many, many friends who were in the public education system, and Cindy and I for years taught marriage and family and parenting seminars, and I, I pejoratively but truthfully say I quit teaching parenting seminars because I had to repent of everything I was saying because the audience could not stomach yes. what we were trying to teach them, which was a biblical framework. and. 
we always said, you know, we, we had four children. You know our story. Three of them are adopted. We always said each semester, sometimes each year, each semester, we evaluated the right school for the right child. I've gone on record now with not a lot of unhappy people, but quite a few saying, if your child's in public school, you're crazy. You need to be in a tutorial or a homeschool setting. And even some Christian schools, I won't name, I have been so disappointed and the way they fumbled some of the aforementioned things we've talked about briefly. It's like, if you're going to pay $30,000 a year for a, quote, Christian education, and they're not going to give you a biblical theological worldview and teach you how to think critically and biblically, you need to get out of there. And if the parents don't know the curriculum, you need to get out of there. But it's the frog in the kettle, Harry. The church in America has become, you know, they're cooked. I think you are precisely correct, and critical race theory is the gateway drug, if you will, to gender dysphoria. That is an explosive move that is affecting the church. You have pastors who are performing in drag. There is a pastor, Isaac Simmons, who claims that performing in drag essentially is the manifestation of Romans 12, 2. That is, you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind by performing in drag. And so all of these movements are related, and they are grounded in a demonic foundation because, at least from my perspective, the man of lawlessness, mm. to some extent, has indeed been released in our culture. Well, he certainly does have, even back in, in Job's era, and I often remind people that's the oldest book in our Bible, that you know Satan is roaming around the earth, and that is not just literary device, that is, this is his dominion, and he is roaming around on it, and God in his great design allows that which gets us way off topic of your book. Come back to help me a little bit. You were raised, you know, differently than I was. I was raised in a white Southern Catholic home in Houston, Texas. You're raised in African-American family system. Yet you have a very different take on Southern Democrats. And I'll, I'll give you one anecdote and let you respond. I'm serving in a church in Northern Virginia, a dear, dear, Dear brother, friend of mine, African-American pastor and I are talking about some issues at that time, and he says to me, the Democrats are the only ones who ever helped my people. And that first person pronoun, my, he said very loudly, my people. And he talked about how Republican policies affected him negatively and democratic policies affected him positively. And I remember trying to have a discussion without pulling the race card into this. And immediately he said to me, you grew up in a white man's system. And I said, I worked all through college. I worked all through seminary. I had no grants. I had no, no one gave me any money. I mowed yards. I painted. I worked on people's cars. No one gave me any money as a handout or a grant or free housing or a scholarship. And he said, but you were in the white man's system. And at that point, you know, any smart white guy, I would say, keeps his mouth shut because you're going to be pummeled as a racist and I'm going, no, this is a free market economy. Go out and get a job. How do you get money? You work. I never expected anyone to pay my way, Harry. But in his worldview, 
the Democrats were the only ones that ever helped my people. Well, I would say in response to that, that if I look at my family background, I would have been very sympathetic to that view, but for the fact that I studied economics. Mm. And when I looked at many of the policies enacted by the Democrats through the lens of economics, the lens of economics basically opened my eyes. So let me give you a real-world example. If you look, for instance, at the apartheid regime in South Africa, if you go back to the 1920s and to the 1930s, and if you look at the legislative history, you will find that many of the so-called far-sighted racists in South Africa they said, we don't have to engage in racism to perpetuate the existing system. They said, instead, let's focus on raising the minimum wage law, and then secondarily, let's ensure that black South Africans don't have an education. And we are then going to allow the market to essentially prevent black South Africans from finding a job. And it worked brilliantly under the apartheid regime. So then I took that data and then I looked at the United States. Which party has strongly supported minimum wage regimes in the United States? It turns out it was the Democrat Party. And the economic evidence is crystal clear, and this is from Democrats and Republicans who've looked at this objectively, it essentially excludes African Americans from the workforce because they are often undereducated and they are underskilled, and therefore they will find that they lose jobs going forward. And so that basically opened my eyes. Now, keep in mind that my parents, my family, they still support quite strongly the Democrat Party. But I have worked as an academic for 35 years. I've written more than 50 law review articles, many of them utilizing law and economics. And those articles demonstrate, I think, beyond question that the Democrats have essentially engaged in a conspiracy to exclude African-Americans from employment. So that basically opened my eyes. The second point I would offer to you is that there's a difference between what I call in the book the bias narrative which says that race explains all, and the development narrative. With the development narrative, we focus on cultural characteristics, family structure, and the like. And so the best thing my parents did for me was to create a healthy nuclear family structure. And if you look at the data, in the United States, individuals, black, white, Asian, green, if they come from a healthy family, they succeed in the United States. But critical race theorists 
they focus on what? Race as the only factor. But it's important to keep in mind that the so-called white privilege thesis was created by Peggy McIntosh, who came from an extremely wealthy family in New Jersey. She went to the University of London and then on took her doctorate from Harvard. And then she's telling me that the only thing that matters is skin color. And I certainly reject that. And indeed, I argue that critical race theory is not really a revolution designed to benefit the poor and the disadvantaged. Instead, it's a counter-revolution of elites. And if you look at the data over the last 30 to 40 years, in the West, you will find the greatest transfer of wealth from the lower middle class and the middle class to the wealthy in human history. And so if you look at many of the woke academics, they teach at elite universities. They (laughs) earn (laughs) upper middle class incomes, but they want to control politically individuals in certain ethnic groups, Latinos, blacks, you name it. But this is very consistent with a critical race playbook. It's all about destroying the existing economy. And Herbert Marcuse, a German critical theorist who immigrated to the United States, he came to the United States to do what? To destroy this country. And so at the end of the day, it turns out that Asian American kids raised in inner city communities, they out earn white males. Yes. And so I reject many of the claims of critical race theorists by looking at the evidence. But lastly, let me point out, critical race theorists reject objective evidence. So they simply assert discrimination, but then they won't look at the data. So it's very difficult to have a rational conversation with them because their mind is not open. Instead, they focus on one thing, feelings of injustice or resentment with respect to the past. And so if I was to focus on resentment, I could argue that my dad or my grandfather, they are owed reparations by society. But if I do that, if I focus on resentment, guess what? It leads down to a dead end called bitterness. And resentment at the end of the day is self-defeating. And so I've decided not to go down that pathway. You know, almost rhetorically, when the reparations conversation comes up, I will get very, you know, boisterous and say, what's the number? Yes. And how are you going to decide who gets what? And it's a fascinating conversation because first generation, second generation, third generation, those who never even understood what it was, a relative, a great-great-grandparent was in fact enslaved. But, you know, that's that's too vitriolic. From your book, African-Americans who are increasingly subjected to efforts by globalist elites designed to rob them of their dignity, agency, 
and humanity, Ron, I want you to come back and define agency. This group also includes individuals who are prepared to defend America's right to exist despite its imperfections against clamorous claims that the United States is a systematically racist nation. Now, one anecdote, then I want you to define agency and then give you the floor for a moment. So again, I'm a college grad. Cindy and I are newly wed, 1980. I'm working for the government in Deep East Texas. I had a Deep East Texas Council of Governments alcohol and alcohol abuse job, working with those who got grants. Cindy worked as a social worker. And the office in which I worked, Harry, were largely African-American employees and one was over the, in that day, called the HUD program. The other was over AFDC, Aid to Families of Dependent Children. Both these women, African-American women, happened to be lovely Christian ladies. We had a sweet friendship. One day I walk in to work in the morning. I got there early and made the coffee for a little office, and I would unabashedly have my little Bible there and read the Bible in the morning before work. So I got to know these ladies, and Norma is crying in her office. And I said, what's wrong? And she's got these piles of eight and a half by 14 manila folders on her desk that she would never find the bottom of her desk. And she says, Michael, I'm holding family after family with able-bodied children who are over the age of 16, who could have a part-time or even a full-time job. Their mothers all single parents, as was she, their mothers and their children drawing more money on HUD and AFDC than I earn in a year working full-time with my three children as a single parent in public schools. And she looked at me with tears, why should I keep working? Now, I'm a you know recently minted college grad that doesn't know what I don't know. And I just looked at her and I said, I don't know, Norma, you tell me the answer to that. And again, she was a lovely Christian woman, but in her own words, it was respect. She said, I could not respect myself if I didn't work. Now, that back to victim and entitlement that you just, you talked about victim. I'm talking about entitlement. It's so ingrained in our culture, Harry. And you talked about healthy families. So twofold question, how do you recover from an entitlement culture that's now an expectation? It's no longer entitlement. I expect to have this paid for. I expect you to pay for my college loans. I expect to have a free cell phone, a free whatever. And you rich white one percenters have to pay for me. And you talk about economics, that's a very short run before that runs out. But the big question, how do you recover from this? So what I would suggest is people need to look at history. So from 1890 to 1950, African-American families were very strong in the United States. The welfare system was very, very limited. So between 1940 and 1960, for example, the black poverty rate fell by 40% the median household income for blacks doubled. So that's well before, if you will, the onset of affirmative action, the 1965 Civil Rights Act, 
And during that period of time, from 1890 to roughly 1960, African Americans had agency. To be sure, they faced some levels of discrimination, so I'm not going to deny that. But they said to themselves, if I work hard, I can take care of my family. Since the passage of the 1965 Civil Rights Act, the level of economic advance within the African-American community has actually slowed down. Yes. And many individuals, you are right in your example, they have simply taken advantage of the system. They have become dependents. And by becoming a dependent, you are robbing yourself of agency, meaning that you cannot determine your own future. And so by contrast, if you look at Syrian Americans, if you look at Taiwanese Americans, if you look at Indonesian Americans, Filipino Americans, they all have higher test scores on standardized tests. They have higher incomes, lower incarceration rates, lower crime rates than white Americans. Yes. So that's an illustration, if you will, of agency. By contrast, if you look at, for instance, the state of Oregon, which is in a real mess right now, the governor of the state of Oregon signed a bill which no longer requires graduates to demonstrate competency in math, in reading, and in writing. And she argues that she is doing blacks, Latinos, and indigenous Americans a favor. Guess what? This means they become unemployable based on a progressive idea which has been in operation for decades. Progressives, I argue, at the end of the day, are among the most racist individuals in America because their policies are poisonous. They're toxic for African Americans, and they're toxic for the entire country. And so some of this goes back to the Fabian Society in Great Britain, where the Fabians basically adopted many of the ideas of Karl Marx, but they recognized Great Britain wasn't ready for Karl Marx, so they softened it. And they basically move toward a form of paternalism. And so they sought to eliminate the infirm. And so in the United States, their policies were effectively enacted by the Buck B. Bell decision, wherein Justice Holmes said, three generations mm -hmm. of imbeciles yeah. are enough. It turns out that Clara Buck, she was not an imbecile, but they got rid of her. <laughs> And now, what are we doing in the United States? We are locating Planned Parenthood clinics in largely black communities and Latino communities. And in fact, 50% or more of Planned Parenthood facilities are located in minority communities. So what are we doing? We are getting rid of those individuals. That's because they need help, Harry. Yes, and, and Margaret Sanger was there. They don't know anything about Sangster. They don't know anything about the founding of this. To, to provide help. <sighs> yeah.
Okay, another anecdote. You and I both lived in D.C. and Northern Virginia for many years when the church I served was on an area of Northern Virginia just outside the Beltway, and there was a street called Little River Turnpike. You probably drove on that occasionally. Little River Turnpike was, for all intensive purposes, a pretty run-down, ramshackled set of strip malls. The Asian communities moved in. And little by little started, they took over a dead paint store. They took over a 7-Eleven that moved to a nicer real estate location. They turned it into a Korean restaurant, into a, a, to, a, to a Chinese dry cleaning services. If you were to drive down Little River Turnpike today, you would never know that in the 1990s, that was sort of a throwaway street. It's beautiful. It's developed. And I have friends, you perhaps have friends, that lived in that area, and it was the Asian community, the hardworking men and women of the aforementioned ethnicities you pointed out, that worked hard, saved their money, pinched their pennies, made their kids go to Thomas Jefferson High School, learn to speak English, made their kids, you know, learn English as a primary language, and they, you know, worked like our parents did in World War II so that we could, quote, have a better future. When I bring that up, to my aforementioned friend, he would get all upset and he would say, it's not the same because we have been oppressed. We have been vilified all these decades. And again, as a white, old white guy, Harry, it's hard for me to joust. I don't want to be, you know, ugly, but I'm at the point in my life. I'm like, truth prevails, whether you don't like it. These things are true. And if we go back to my worldview, we're made in the image of God. We're not made in the image of race or ethnicity or where you are born. You're made imago Deo. What you do with your life is between you and your maker. And if you choose to work hard and get there early and stay a little late and try a little harder and get that extra degree, whatever it is, it will work out, right? Or am I wrong? I think you're absolutely correct. And I think one of the things that I would encourage listeners to think about is whether or not there are actual racial categories in the world. In my own view, there are ethnic categories, and within ethnicities, there are characteristics that have been formulated over hundreds or even thousands of years. Yes. And so what we need to do is to encourage people to emulate the healthy characteristics that are found in different ethnic groups. That is made difficult because critical race theorists, they always raise the question of slavery. But it's important to note that slavery was not uniquely an American institution. It's a human institution. And in fact, the richest person who ever lived, in all likelihood, was a guy named Mansa Musa, who was the emperor of the West African kingdom of Mali. And he acquired wealth through the salt trade, salt mining, gold mining, and slavery. And his slaves were both black and white. And so slavery, again, is a human institution. But since the 1619 project was produced by the New York Times, we are told the United States has had this unique history. But it's also important to keep in mind, if we're going to look at history, 
West, second generation West Indian blacks out earn white Americans. Explain that. Nigerians are among the highest educated individuals in the United States. So again, I keep coming back to this development narrative, and I want to encourage people to move away from the resentment narrative, because the resentment narrative at the end of the day is poison for those individuals that accept it. So again, agency is important. An understanding of history is important. But keep in mind, critical race theorists would characterize what I just said as implicitly, if not explicitly, racist. So it's very difficult to have a real-world conversation about what is going on. Lastly, let me point out, and you mentioned the Thomas Jefferson High School. In 2003, the Thomas Jefferson High School basically had a student body that was 75% white, 8 or 9% black, 8 or 9% Latino, etc. Today, 75% roughly of the students at Thomas Jefferson High are Asian. Guess what? The powers that be in Fairfax County, they have decided that we need, quote unquote, more diversity. What does that mean? It means getting rid of Asian students Asian students study 13 hours per week on average. Yep. American white kids study on average five and a half hours a week. <laughs> so which group is likely oh, wait, to excel? Oh, wait, they study at all? <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and so we just keep ignoring the evidence. Yeah, I, I remember conversations when you were teaching law, talking about walking around the classroom and your kids were posting on social media and not listening to your lecture. Okay, two final things. We're running short. You mentioned earlier about neo-pagan Puritanism that is rich in ritual. Again, you and I understand that we traffic in this nomenclature. Not all of our listeners do. And I loved what you were saying about that, but explain to our folks what it means when we go down this path? Well, first, let me suggest what critical race theory means in terms of ritual. So I argue social justice warriors engage in quasi-religious rituals as they endlessly recite the names of victims of injustice they raise their fists to the heavens in solidarity with strangers, and they snub objective evidence. Now, what I just described for you, Michael, is simply a West African pagan ceremony, and then you pour water on the ground, allowing the dead to basically resurrect themselves and enact their own justice. So that is one of the rituals that's out there. And churches throughout America, universities, and other individuals have been relentless in demanding that we say the names, that we raise our hands. I refuse to say the names. I refuse to raise my hand because I don't believe in engaging in that type of ritualistic behavior. Thank you. Yes, I believe in justice. Yes, I believe that injustice still occurs in the United States, 
But it's important to keep in mind that a police officer in the United States is 18 times more likely to be killed than an unarmed black man. That's the reality. But because we live in an age called the requiem for reality, if you will, basically people flee the evidence. Instead, they basically prefer feelings, feelings of injustice that for them is enough. I remember when BLM first started getting traction and people were putting the black square on their social media posts, and I refused to do it yes. for a number of reasons. And I asked a lot of my Christian peer, why are you doing this? And they said, well, we want to show support. And I said, do you understand what you are doing, not implicitly, but explicitly? Because man was made in the image of God. It doesn't, and I so appreciate your clarification because I've said this forever, but I'm just a hack theologian preacher. Ethnicity, not race, is the issue. And Christ said, make disciples of all ethnos. He didn't differentiate one race or two races. But okay, last question, counselor. Give us some hope and help and encouragement. How do you recover? How do we recover from this family system you mentioned that the father is vilified and out of the picture? How do you recover getting Americans to just think soberly about truth, not about emotion, to say, you know, a husband and wife who love each other is a great, no, it's a wonderful model for how to structure a home, to see how a man and a woman made in God's image, look differently, but complement one another to raise children to give them a good identity of who they are in Christ. Well, I would start with Tony Eslin's book, No Apologies, Why Civilization Depends on the Strength of Men. I know that's a radical title for a book in contemporary society, but it is what is necessary, and this is a message we have to continue to speak, and we need to speak it with courage. And so, at the end of the day, I think Christian parents, they have to begin to speak the truth with courage. They can't simply shy away from conflict. They can't simply focus on being inclusive and tolerant and compassionate. Part of the issue is we've got to encourage the church to return to biblical truth and move away from a different seeker-sensitive model that is focused on inclusion. No person in human history was arguably more judgmental at the end of the day than Jesus. And basically, he condemned the religious leaders. So one of the things that I would encourage Christians to do is to look critically at their own leaders. We live in a culture wherein self-worship is now the fastest-growing religion in America. And that is growing. That religion is growing in Christian churches, in Jewish synagogues. And so one of the things we have to do is we have to begin to center our own lives on something called truth. And if we don't do that, then we will find civilizational disaster awaits us. 
Harry Hutchinson, author of the new book, Requiem for Reality, Simon & Schuster Publication. If you just put Harry Hutchison, H-U-T-H-I-S-O-N, along with Requiem in your search engine, you'll find the book. Most any place books are sold online. And then he mentioned a book by Anthony Esseline called No Apologies, Why Civilization Depends on the Strength of Men. We'll put that in the show notes. I don't want you to buy that book as much as I want you to take a look at Harry's book today, Requiem for Reality. Counselor, thank you, thank you, thank you for your labors to put this book together. I know you're an academic at heart, but I also know it takes a lot of sweat equity to write something like this. I look forward to reading it in detail, and I can't thank you enough for coming on the broadcast. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters. 